I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and a wardrobe door But I Welcome to another totally gnarly episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where, as members of the dreaded Foot Clan, we strike from the shadows and take control of a weak and unsuspecting world under the leadership of the almighty Fudge, <coughs> Fang, <coughs> Shredder. <laughs> we also look at books written for kids and young adults, alternating between the pre- and post-Potter periods. My name is Foot Soldier Laurie, and I'm joined by the Tay-Tay Swift and Dangerous Patrick Moon. Oh, I knew that was going to be me. Oh, I thought that was going to be me. (laughs) That's my title. (laughs) The silent but deadly Keith Rowe. Hello. And the stings like a butterfly moves like a tree, Bree. Moves like a tree. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if to be insulted or not there. <laughs> Doesn't seem at all derogatory. Hello. This episode, we wind back the clocks to 1972, quite a few years before any of us were born, to a book that has been loved by kids for decades since, an almost Shakespearean tale of jealousy, sibling rivalry and betrayal. The gruesome and disturbing <laughs> Tales of a Fourth Grade <laughs> Nothing by Judy Bloom. Before I editorialise any further, a warning. I think we might have got like the intro for Book of Lost Things and <laughs> Tales of Fourth Grade. Nothing there, like intertwined. Well, we shall see. In any event, welcome to Fourth Grade at the School of Tumnus. In the interests of law and order, we have a few ground rules no annoying siblings, no advertising XX or obnoxious clients, no diving from the playground equipment in attempts to fly, particularly if you haven't learned how to miss the ground yet, <laughs> and no attempts to ingest anything that shouldn't have gone in your mouth in the first place. Whatever you're thinking right now, you're wrong. If any of those things interest you, maybe you should go read Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and then come back to class. Okay? For those of you still in your seats, I think Keith Rowe is going to stand up and read the first page to the rest of the class. <laughs> yes, sir. Bravo, sir. Chapter 1. The Big Winner I won dribble at Jimmy Fargo's birthday party. All the other guys got to take home goldfish in little plastic bags. I won him because I guessed there were 348 jelly beans in Mrs Fargo's jar. Really, there were 423, she told us later. Still, my guess was closest. Peter Warren Hatcher is the big winner, Mrs Fargo announced. At first I felt bad that I didn't get a goldfish too. Then Jimmy handed me a glass bowl. Inside, there was some water and three rocks. A tiny green turtle was sleeping on the biggest rock. All the other guys looked at their goldfish. I knew what they were thinking. They wished they could have tiny green turtles too. I named my turtle Dribble while I was walking home from Jimmy's party. I live at 25 West 68th Street. It's an old apartment building, but it's got one of the best elevators in New York City. There are mirrors all around. You can see yourself from every angle. There's a soft, cushioned bench to sit on if you're too tired to stand. The elevator operator's name is Henry Bevelheimer. He lets us call him Henry because Bevelheimer is very hard to say. Our apartment's on the 12th floor. 
but I don't have to tell Henry. He already knows. He knows everybody in the building. He's that smart. He even knows I'm nine and in fourth grade. I showed him dribble right away. I won him at a birthday party, I said. Henry smiled. Your mother's going to be surprised. Uh, approximately page one. Thank you. So what do you think, Pat? I'm not sort of super intrigued at this point. I thought the language was a little bit... Uh, it was pitched low. And that's the problem that I've run into with a couple of the books, I think, that I haven't really gotten behind quite as much as they're, they're pitched fairly low. They're definitely in the realm of children's books. And I don't know what it is that I'm missing portion of my soul. I, I don't know. <laughs> but... They don't tickle me. They don't get me straight off the bat. And I struggled a little bit from the get-go here. But I'm happy to be in the minority. What about you, Laurie? I suspect maybe I'm going to have some support on this front. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I recognised straight away that this was definitely for young children. Whereas The Book of Lost Things, which was our last episode, was definitely at the older end of the spectrum for young adults. So I understood that it was a children's book. And I kind of imagined straight away that this is exactly the kind of thing that a teacher might be reading out loud to a classroom. So yeah, it was pitched low, but it's also for younger kids. So I didn't mind so far. And, you know, I like animals as well. So I thought it was a cute start. But you're right, there's nothing super engaging at this point. Do you find though that the authors like Roald Dahl and another book that we're currently reading in the same sort of market, yep. they open really well. They're still aimed low. They're still pitched low, but they have a bit of verve and a bit of spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And they come out swinging despite being indisputably children's books. And I, I just felt a little bit flat here. Yeah, I understand that. You're right. Someone like Roald Dahl smacks you in the face with all sorts of wonder and excitement really quickly, whereas this one might be a bit more of a slow burn you for that. <laughs> it feels a little <laughs> conservative. Bree, what do you reckon? Well, let me just say that I would be mortified if my child came home from a birthday party with a goldfish, <laughs> let alone a turtle. So, yeah. I mean, I'm the type that dislikes it when my kids come home with a lolly bag because don't these mothers understand that mine only eat kale chips? I'm calling child services (laughs) But this is the kind of thing that I would be discussing at the school gate with mothers Can you believe that Jimmy Fargo, his mother, let my kid come home with a turtle and a goldfish What on earth was she thinking? So I guess for me that's where it took me as an adult Were you so horrified at the prospect that you thought about putting the book in the freezer? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. The Book of Lost Things. Go back and listen to that podcast and you can all understand what that's about. I agree, however. This isn't the Judy Bloom that I remembered. I understand that it was for much younger children and I know that she's written other books for teenagers right through to sort of 16 or 17. So this one's definitely firmly in that eight-year-old or less category. Keith? Geez, I'm preparing myself for a battering here. (laughs) It gets better. Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah, look, to be honest, the first page didn't have me as excited for this book as I hoped it would. It wasn't the running start that I had hoped it would be, but still, I was excited to read on. Did you remember from hearing that exactly what happened at the end? Because I did. No, I didn't actually. Oh, I had this crystal clear memory. I did have this inkling, but I couldn't recall exactly. And I did sort of lean towards that idea, but I thought, surely not. Because it does. (laughs) It does. (laughs) There is a bit of foreshadowing of that event. 
Should we just spill the beans on what this <laughs> event is? If we, we're talking in circles around <laughs> We are. Let me give the synopsis then. Yeah, okay. Hit us with the synopsis. People are going to be so disappointed. All this foreshadowing that we've given, what this grand event is that nobody sees coming at the end of the book. It just hits you like a freight train. It's All right. <laughs> prepare to go out with a whimper. Nine-year-old Peter Hatcher is the protagonist. And as you've heard, when we first step into his life, he is just one dribble. A tiny green turtle at Jimmy Fargo's birthday party. Despite some reluctance from his mother, Peter takes his little prize home and begins to diligently care for his new little friend. Peter is no only child, however. He has a troublesome, terrible two-year-old fist-sucking younger brother, Farley Drexel Hatcher, better known as Fudge, who is perilous to himself and to Peter's things. So Peter warns him. That's my turtle, get it? Mine? You don't touch him. Fudge said, no touch. Then he <laughs> laughed like crazy. The story follows an increasingly frustrated Peter as Fudge acts like a two-year-old might and gets away with bloody murder, whilst Peter feels ignored and wronged by the seemingly never-punished youngster. Fudge's misadventures include sticking supermarket coupons on the luggage of a visiting client, Mr Yabi, losing the Juicy O contract for his father, refusing to eat and pretending to be a dog, falling off a children's playset and knocking out his two front teeth, destroying a group project that Peter and his two classmates worked on, and running off on his family in the cinema and causing the film to be stopped whilst they searched for him. Peter, though knowing that his brother is young and that little Fudge idolises him, cannot help but feel his parents are prioritising Fudge's interests over his own and that they never punish Fudge for his transgressions. So he at once cares for his little brother and begins to resent him. But the worst is yet to come. In a shocking end, Peter discovers that Fudge has eaten his beloved turtle Dribble. But it's okay. (gasps) Fudge is taken to hospital, shits out a dead Dribble two days later, (laughs) and his parents give Peter a dog that is no doubt going to be serial killed by Fudge in some later book. The end. No editorialising at all, as I suspected. (laughs) You've just described my last month perfectly. Well done, Laurie. Thank you. Let me do that last part again. But the worst is yet to come. In a shocking end, Peter discovers that Fudge has eaten his beloved turtle dribble. Fudge is rushed to hospital by Peter's stricken mother. The prognosis is good, however, for young Fudge, and he recovers from his odd dining experience within a couple of days. Sadly, Dribble does not survive, and a grieving Peter is gifted a new dog by his understanding parents. He named him Turtle. The end. That was a really long synopsis. (laughs) That was so sincere, that last bit as well. (laughs) The book took approximately that long to read, so well done. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't think it's the most egregious of the synopsis sins that have been committed today. (laughs) I don't know what that's implying. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yes, there are some dramatic twists and turns in there. But before we get into our own thoughts, Keith, why did you pick this one? Why, Keith? (laughs) (laughs) This was always a selfish choice. And I figured that Laurie and Pat both had not read this. I knew that Brie had read some Judy Bloom. I also knew that this wasn't the pick of the bunch for her. But this was really, for me, it sticks in my memory as one of the first chapter books that I read that wasn't Roald Dahl. Mm. Around that same time, I think Paul Jennings was another author that I was reading and his 
books were short stories. So it sticks in my mind from that. I think it was my second grade teacher, Mrs. Webb, who introduced me to the book. And I don't know whether it was read to the class or whether whether just an excerpt was read and uh, I then followed up and borrowed it from the library. But I had some fond memories both of the book and of that teacher. She's one of those teachers that sticks in your mind, probably my favourite teacher of all time, certainly my favourite in primary school. These are all, depending on how you look at it, excuses for my selection of this book. In my mind, I don't need excuses, but the rest of you sound like you haven't enjoyed it too much. <laughs> you sound defiant, well, don't you? You're not alone, Keith. A lot, of, a lot of children have read and loved this book. Looking on the internet at the number of reviews on, say, Goodreads, and just sort of general... I don't know, remarks about it on the web, but it seems to be a very fondly remembered book and a lot of people have revisited it by the looks of Goodreads, so you're not alone. And it's still being read in schools, that many websites where it's teaching notes and crosswords and all of these sort of fun games and puzzles and those sorts of things that you can play with these characters. Yeah, that's right. So I should mention as well, this does form part of a series. They say that there's five in this series, but really the second one isn't based on the Hatcher family. So Fudge in particular plays only a very glancing role in it. So I'd say there's four really. I had read at least the second one, Super Fudge, and quite possibly Fudgemania. By the time that came out, though, I was well past this level of reading, but I think the attachment to the characters would have had me still reading it because I do, having skimmed the synopsis, I do remember parts of that. But basically, I remember this as being a really fun book, something that got a few laughs. The character of Fudge was good comic relief. In which book was it that he started throwing lotion down into a basket at the bottom of a hand-dug well? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> It'll become obvious to everyone, if it's not already, uh, that Laurie has no children. <laughs> With all this in mind, the fact that it was more than 25 years, as shocking as it is to say that since I'd read this, I really wanted to read it again. It was one of the first things that came to mind when I was thinking through my history of reading and what better way I thought to revisit this and to force it upon the unsuspecting friends in Seeking Tumness. <laughs> I was a little concerned, particularly after reading The Book of Lost Things, that it would be way too simple. But this is a book for children and I hope the rest of you cannot forget that as we go through and discuss our <laughs> thoughts on it. <laughs> <laughs> Our last foray into the books for younger audiences didn't fare so well either in our appraisals. That was The Enchanted Wood. But let's see how we go here. Laurie, why don't you start us off with your glowing review of <laughs> this book? All right. I thought the portrayals of the young children were spot on and at times genuinely funny. I think a young boy or girl reading this would have quite a lot of fun particularly if they had a younger sibling that had troubled them in the past. Reading it, I really felt like I was reading about real people, and probably that might be because some of these stories are based on real events that Judy Bloom experienced with her children, perhaps. So, yeah, I thought those portrayals were excellent. I was a bit sus on the writing at times. I'm probably the worst son of an English teacher when it comes to grammar, enunciation and pronunciation. But I do know that starting one's sentences with but is poor form, and that happens quite a bit. A younger reader probably won't pick up on the technicalities, though, and I can see why teachers would drop this one out. The book was written as narrated by a nine-year-old. Yeah, but that's no excuse for technical problems. <laughs> mm. I love that humour was important, not just in the delivery of the story, but also to diffuse tension in the family. I'm a firm believer that people's lives can be made infinitely less painful if they learn to laugh themselves and at the messes that you can get into. So I really like that. 
There's a few, I don't know if they're anachronisms, but there's a few parts of the book where things have changed. You know, it's been so many years since the book was written that things like you mentioned Brie, the turtle coming home from the party Mm. and probably the open talk about there being dope pushes in the park that the kids go visit. (laughs) Yep. The two that spring to mind. They were a bit strange. I'm not sure that you'd include that kind of thing. It's just, I don't know, the inclusion of the talk of drugs in general. I I don't have a problem with it, but I just don't think it's something that would happen so much these days. New York at that time was quite renowned for violence on the streets and being an unsafe place. So maybe it's putting it in that location and it's realistic for the time. Yeah, you're right. For us reading it, we can't relate to that. So it does seem a bit striking to have it in a children's book. Are you talking about the fact that it's in the book being strange or the mention of dope pushes on the streets because we're living in a beautiful drug-free society (laughs) currently? No, I guess on two fronts. On one, that's something that's definitely, I feel, has changed. Probably it still happens, but New York is a much, at least from my limited experience having been there and what we see in the news and on television, it seems to be a much cleaner place. I think there's much more stringent law enforcement, particularly in the CBD of New York. Yeah, I think through the 90s, there was a big push to clean things up, get rid of the seedy sort of element. Except when Laurie's visiting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was something that I noticed has changed. So it's something that's, it's very particular to the time that the book was written, I'd say. It was odd seeing that in the book, though. Like, I don't know why they bothered to mention it in the children's book unless it was like a warning to any kids that lived in New York to avoid the park. I kind of think, why not? You know, you're situating it in a particular place at the time. I mean, if I was writing a book about living off Victoria Street in Abbotsford in Melbourne, I would probably be talking about the high-rise buildings, seeing the drug dealers on the street as I walk to school because that is exactly what happens every single day. Mm. And yet... I am quite happy to take my kids down there for a bowl of fur. I think it adds to the authenticity of the setting of the book and it is clearly only the retelling through the child's eyes here. So we see what he's been told. He doesn't necessarily understand what he's saying. Yeah, but it's it's something that's more at home in a book like Came Back to Tell You I Could Fly rather than a book for nine-year-olds, I feel, maybe. No? Okay, maybe it's just me. I think it's probably the definition of mountains and molehills. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting aside, I think. Well, to be fair, I didn't know it was going to turn into a three-minute discussion. So. <laughs> Any chance to jump on you and your opinions is taken with great relish. Yeah, right. You've got my hackles up, so... All right. Ultimately, though, no matter how much I liked the book, which I did to begin with, and the characters, it was all for nothing because I found the ending... Utterly repulsive, just sick (laughs) and overwhelmingly disappointing. I I really can't articulate how disgusted I was by the murder of young Dribble and the weak, half-assed response by Peter's parents. Irredeemable. (laughs) I think it's manslaughter at worst, to be honest, but... It was a eating. Yeah, but he didn't intend to kill it. He's two years old. How many creatures do you eat that you don't intend to kill? Well, as a two-year-old, I don't know, but a few bugs might have got in there. My two-year-old ate an entire snail in the garden. There you go. Oh, that's revolting. So, you know what? Like, it's not that hard. Yeah, but a snail... One minute it's there, the next you're picking bits of snail shell out of their teeth. You know, a snail in the garden, I can understand, because it's just something you see in the garden, you throw it in your mouth, oh, it's gone. All right. And it's delicious. <laughs> delicious, you know. 
especially when he's had such an influence from French culture. <laughs> but when you have an animal in your home that your older brother is caring for daily and clearly has affection for, and you throw that down your gaping more and murder it, it's just, it he's was not gross. murdering it though. It was really, it was really offensive. I was disgusted. Anything that I enjoyed about the book was completely solid by that moment. So that's, that's, that's ruined it for me. That's me. Yep. Bring out the firing squad. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Patrick? How'd you enjoy the little sociopath? I think my opinion is largely just sort of meh. Yeah. Meh. I definitely didn't feel as passionately as you did about the ending. I enjoyed that thoroughly. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you had such a visceral reaction. I was worried a little bit, I think, coming to the table myself because I don't really have much interest one way or the other to say it didn't much move me. I thought the writing was fine. I thought it hit the mark for the age group. And I'm a purist as well as far as grammar and writing are concerned, but those rules are meant to be broken. If you're writing from a certain perspective, then you use the language to your benefit. You use it to affect, to try and recreate the speech patterns or the writing patterns of the narrator and the audience that you're writing towards, I would not hesitate to commence a sentence with but. Three times on one page? But anyway, I applaud that response, Pat. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times on one page. I'm not, I'm not even going to ask you to repeat it. It doesn't matter. All the sentences on the page can start with but, and that's a beautiful piece of art. Ugh. It would probably sell for millions. You should read some... Uh... What's his name? Matthew Riley, then. You'd love it. (laughs) Then again, look at people like Cormac McCarthy, who use language in some pretty unorthodox kinds of ways. And he's written some of the most beautiful prose in the English language. His, His novels are absolutely sublime. And he uses the language in ways that aren't conventional. But that's not Uh, what you saw in this book, surely. Come on, let's not confuse the issue. I'm not saying that Judy Bloom is the Cormac McCarthy of children's literature, <laughs> but it's the same principle. You can do what you like. You can juggle. You can play with stuff, and it, it achieves an end. So I think your criticism there is falling short, and you're being blinded by your rage <laughs> in the face of Dribble's demise. That was probably my most minor quibble of the book, to be honest with you. It was only a few times that I noticed. That was the least of my concerns, definitely. You're lashing out blindly. But I didn't feel like much happened in the rest of the book. It was a, a series of interconnected events. And it seems to be a complaint that I bring up over regularly. And again, I'm starting to wonder whether it's a deficit in myself rather than things I'm reading. But I feel much as I did with Anne of Green Gables, much as I did with The Enchanted Wood, that there's kind of a disconnect between the events. And I'm not really seeing much of a progression of narrative, of story. And ultimately, we we have a kid who kind of resents his brother, doesn't like him very much. At the end of the book, pretty much the same, except he's got a new dog now, so it's kind of okay. For kids, it's probably okay, and they would get into the characters. The characters were well-written, they were enjoyable, and they're not really looking for Cormac McCarthy levels of narrative delight, which is obviously what I'm seeking and failing to find. So for the audience... It's probably going to hit its mark, but just not for me. What about you, Bree? What's your take? I agree with you about your point around a lot of these younger books don't have that 
story arc. However, I think that that's okay because the point of these books isn't to actually tie everything together and have a nice, neat little journey along with a purpose. These books are just meant to engage kids, get them excited about reading and reading about a kid who has similar experiences to yourself, who goes to school, who has to work on school projects, who's got these annoying sibling, who's got these irritating parents who can't seem to see it from his perspective. I think that's okay. And a lot of Judy Bloom's books deal with those everyday events that you go through as you grow up getting your first period being teased and having bullying losing your virginity in one of them I can't remember I page 85 but anyway forever page 85 everybody got that these are the things that you don't necessarily see in every book that's written for children I think that's okay I remember reading this book 25 years ago just like Keith and I remember not liking this one of all of the Judy Blooms but it is about a boy I don't have a brother I grew up with my little sister Bronte who's probably listening hi Bronte Bronte gets so many shares <laughs> don't be greedy so Bronte much. but she will agree with me on this we read a lot of Judy Bloom and we read a lot of Anne M. Martin, who wrote The Babysitter's Club, and we read a lot of Paula Danziger. And all of these things dealt with everyday normal stuff, knowing that you're not the only one out there going through the same sorts of things. So I think there's a place for it, and I think that that's okay. I think there is a place for it, but so many of those issues that you talk about just seem a little bit weightier, a little bit meatier, and I would get behind some of those sorts of topics a little bit more. I just couldn't quite make it. I think you're right there. If you read some of those, it's done in this same sort of style. It's not great literary prose. It's not going to win any awards. And it is done in the a 14-year-old girl speaking to God in one of them. I must interject. I'm sure Judy Bloom has won plenty of awards. Yes. It's not going to win the Miles Franklin <laughs> for amazing literature. This time, 25 <laughs> years on, I read it, obviously, through my perspective as a mother. And I cringed through it because I can see myself in the actions of that mother. And she's doing a bloody fantastic job dealing with a two-year-and-a-half-year-old and he can't dress or eat, convey his needs. He can't do anything independently. And then at nine years old, you've got this pretty competent kid who just wishes his parents would take a little bit more notice. But at the same time, he's a bit quiet and a bit introverted in some ways as well. And I think Peter describes motherhood perfectly for me when he says that sometimes she laughs like crazy at my jokes other times she pretends not to get them. And then there are those times when I know she gets them, but she doesn't seem to like them. <laughs> and you know what? That is it for me. Like, you try your hardest every single day, but we get tired. I get cranky. <sighs> it's been a day. <laughs> <laughs> I think Laurie gets crankier. <laughs> <laughs> I did like, just to jump in there, I did like that Peter was actually a pretty good kid. There were a lot of times when he did get the short end of the stick. And yes, he did sort of lash out once or twice, but there were times when it was genuinely deserved and he was pretty willing to do what his parents asked, which was do something so Fudge would do something that they wanted him to do. Like, oh, what's an example? Getting the shoes. Yeah, yeah. Pretend to wear a particular set of shoes and buy them so little Fudge would buy those particular shoes. Yeah. He went along with things pretty well. So that was really nice, I thought. I did look up that style of shoe and it's an ugly, ugly shoe. <laughs> Is it? Well, was it a cradle shoe or something? Saddle, saddlers or? Saddle shoe, there you go. So Peter really took one for the team. <laughs> the alternative was a loafer. I'm like, that's not that great either. <laughs> right. The other thing I wanted to mention before we finish up with you, Brie, is the chapter book style. One of the comments that I did notice recurred a few times on Goodreads was 
the fact that all these chapters were succinct little stories was a positive that school teachers liked giving this book out because the children reading the book could just read a single chapter. It was its own little story and then reading time was over or it's bedtime or whatever and they could move on. And that's probably exactly why these books are written, not with a long stretching narrative that you have to keep a track of, but a sort of underlying theme that runs through the entire book, but chapters that are really distinct. So maybe that's why we as adults don't appreciate it as much because we'll blast through three or four chapters and say, why aren't these linking together? Whereas a kid might only have time to read for 15, 20 minutes before time for something else in class. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think Brie touched on that earlier as well. It's designed to encourage reading. And if you get a pretty good experience from reading a short passage, then it's going to encourage you to read more. And if you're putting a child down and saying, read this book, and the payoff's not really an instantaneous one, it may be something that they'll put down and think, oh, books, there's not enough in them for me. So something like this will encourage reading. And it did with me. So that's a really good point. Sorry, Bree, back to you. Bloom relates to children and Rereading it 25 years later, I can see that she relates to parents because she's basically just describing my week. Dealing with a two and a half year old, like it's really hard. It's that hard age. They can't do anything. And you know what? Peter, just suck it up. <laughs> he does a pretty good job of sucking it he up. He does. He's a pretty good kid. Yeah. So I think his parents are doing a great job. Keith? We've had shots fired in this arena already, so I don't feel I need to hold back. So I think Judy Bloom does a a remarkable job of capturing the voice of nine-year-old Peter Hatcher. Mm. In fact, I'd say he's a much more convincing nine-year-old than Gerald Durrell <laughs> using his that own voice true. <laughs> as a 10-year-old. So this 30-odd-year-old woman has done a better job than Gerald Durrell in capturing the voice of a small child. Let me just interject here on Laurie's behalf. It's actually Gerald Durrell. Thank goodness. It only took two episodes <laughs> or more to figure that one out. Sorry, Gerald. He's dead. You're giving him a beautiful sort of French twist there, though. That was nice. <laughs> Gerald. I think that might be a sex act, actually. <laughs> what is it these days? Come on. I don't think that was the intention, though. It, I'm not sure that we're aiming for eight-year-olds with my family and other animals. No, we're not. Well, my family and other animals had the vocabulary of an act of parliament. Yes, he certainly <laughs> wasn't written by a nine-year-old. But this book is written for the age and younger of the protagonist. I really like that. I think she did a fantastic job of that. Not only that, the family dynamic, which Breeze touched on quite extensively, I think was very believable. And when I read it initially, obviously I wasn't reading it with the same perspective as I have now, being the parent with a three-year-old and a six-month-old, it still rang true. So I really liked that and some of the episodes in there as well. The Eat It or Wear It episode was an enjoyable one. <laughs> I liked that she went there. It wasn't extreme, but there was some sort of parenting that you might not hear about on the streets, but it is parenting that happens out there. I like that she includes that. Do you want to describe it? Basically, fudges on a self-imposed, unexplained hunger strike. Yes. The family tries several things to get him to eat and in a particular moment of desperation, Warren Hatcher, their father, picks up Fudge, takes him to the bath, picks up his food and basically dumps it on his head. 
<laughs> and he's got the catchphrase, yes. eat it or wear it. Which then is a recurring theme that Fudge uses through the book. It is an act of parental desperation, but it was, in fact, effective because Fudge did thereafter eat. So I liked that that was in there, and that was a sort of comedy that was consistent throughout. Now, I know everyone sort of said that the overarching story wasn't there, and it wasn't to a great extent, but I think there was some foreshadowing early on. Things escalated as the book went along, so you sort of got the more mundane family events to begin with and as it went through it escalated to the point where Laurie was in tears crying over the lost turtle at the end. There's no way else to describe it other than to say that it was quite shocking. I'd like to know the reasoning behind that direction. Yeah, I don't know that she appreciated perhaps how traumatic that might be. It was really odd that the rest of the characters, like you were saying, Keith, and I mentioned before, the characters are really spot on. You really feel that you're reading about real children and you're hearing in real children's voices. I think she does an excellent job of capturing the spirit of children. And yet then there's this really upsetting, for some, (laughs) really upsetting ending that seems totally incongruous. And I'm not the only person. There are many people that have reviewed the book and some of the lower ratings said, yeah, really enjoyed it, loved the characters, blah, blah, blah. Hated the ending. Why did you kill the turtle? And yet I'm the person that wants to put books in freezers and this one didn't really bother me. I love animals and it just seems so incongruous that it just made me angry. I'm not the only one. I'm not sure whether that would have been as true when the book was written as it is now. I don't know. Maybe we're a bit more sensitive about the treatment of animals, perhaps. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, I I just found it really odd. Yeah, we may be, but I guess what I was able to do that I don't think you were is tie that behaviour to a two-year-old. Yeah. It was a foolish act. I don't think you can read into it more than that. Mm. Alternatively, two-year-olds are just a little bit demonic. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Just ask me or Bree. That happens. (laughs) It absolutely does. (laughs) I was kind of waiting for the the comedic twist there, for the other shoe to drop, for them to say, oh, we all thought Fudge had eaten the turtle, but as it turns out, he'd just put it behind the bed and we missed it. And, oh, here's Dribble. Everyone's happy now. I thought that too. And they take him for an x-ray and there's a freaking turtle (laughs) in his stomach. That's right. That was the point of no return. It's like, oh, there's no way out now. Oh, there is a way out, sorry, but not one with a live turtle. (laughs) Yeah, and there's one point where Peter knows that it's very unlikely, but when they finally describe that the turtle has come out, he's like, dead or alive. His grandmother yells at him. She says, Peter Warren Hatcher, what a question. Yeah, that was rough, that treatment from the grandma. And I felt so bad for him. Like, it's this last sort of pleading, is he still alive? Mm. And he gets yelled at once again. It's a bit heartbreaking. He copped the short end of the stick a few times, poor old Peter. His jealousness and the attention his brother received was pretty well warranted throughout, but that is the truth with a two-year-old. They need that extra attention. There is nothing you can do about it. That's right. Well, So don't buy you a turtle, Laurie. <laughs> no, I don't actually ever want to own a turtle. <laughs> but if you did... Please don't let your two-year-old eat it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought at first of the logistics of it, I thought, hang on, how big is this turtle? I know it was a small turtle. I just wondered how. Well, he said he didn't chew it too. Yeah, I mean, how painful would that be? That would have been really gruesome if he had chewed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she must have put that in to be like, no, there's no need to imagine the horrible gore fest that was this child (laughs) tearing the turtle to shreds. He swallowed it whole and had a peaceful death. (laughs) That would have been painful both ways, but anyway. Very empathetic of you, Laurie. It was extreme. It was strange a little bit. 
maybe highlighted the difference in the treatment. Fudge was the one that had done this, but he never got punishment for it apart from being briefly hospitalised. But I don't think that would have been too traumatic. But how do you punish a two-year-old? There's nothing you can do. Can I just read that? Because that I found really off-putting as well. The next morning, Fudge came home from the hospital. My father carried him into the apartment. My mother's arms were loaded with presents, all for him. She said, Fudgy can have anything he wants, anything at all. Mummy's so happy her baby's all better. It was disgusting. Presents and <laughs> kisses and attention for Fudge. I couldn't even look at him. He was having fun. He probably wasn't even sorry. He ate my turtle. Poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would have been exactly your feelings at the time, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I have two things. The first is I enjoyed that passage <laughs> 50 times more than when I read it myself, just having you read it out to me, Laurie. Oh. Maybe that's part of the enjoyment of these kinds of books. And the teacher reading. Yeah. Having the librarian, having the teacher read to you while you sit on the floor or lie down and have that school library time. That was something I always enjoyed. And this book probably is suited to that kind of thing. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yep. The other point that I was just thinking is, would we be having this conversation about the turtle murder the turtle side <laughs> if Roald Dahl had written this book I don't think he would have written that mm. he wrote that giants eat children yeah but that's a very deliberate this world is is our world so some of Roald Dahl's books have more of a supernatural element and they're a bit more extreme mm. and a bit more comedy based Maybe it's the veering away from that reality basis towards a more quirky thing right at the ultimate stage of the book mm. Yeah, that's right. It made it shocking in the context of the rest of the book. Aubrey, if you're right, if there is no difference, then it's purely the skill of the author then to make it not horrific, to make it something else, like something mysterious and sometimes funny and a little bit scary, but not gross. But we did see the suffering through the eyes of Peter and it was believable and it did capture what my feelings would have been at the time and what your feelings are now. Mm. It was upsetting. Yeah, yeah I agree. Mm. Now listen, I don't want to trivialise the subject too much, but Keith, it's time for Tumnus Trivia. <laughs> Tumnus <laughs> Trivia? It was tenuous trivia last episode. Uh, <laughs> I might just call it Trivia Tidbit or Titbit, whichever direction your preference takes you. What I'll do this week is I will list out 10 fudge antics. Amongst these is one real antic of fudge from Super Fudge. That's... Technically speaking, they are considered number three in the series, but really it's number two. It's the follow-up to this book that we've read here. This is more confusing than the Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Here's the ten fudge antics. So number one, kicked his preschool teacher because she used his real name. Number two, painted the family dog Turtle because he didn't like its colour. Number three, pitted a gecko and a praying mantis against each other in a glorious <laughs> battle to the death. This sounds like the kind of stuff that Laurie was expecting. <laughs> he lowers them down and yeah. in his sing-song little voice, says, it puts the lotion on its chitinous shell. And to be fair, Mr. Durrell didn't pit them against each other. It was just an unfortunate accident. He didn't. I just couldn't resist going there. Number four, hides his newborn baby sister under his bed. Number five, teams up with a neighbour friend to throw food at a girl in their class. Number six, together with his grandma, takes on and defeats a secret organisation. Number seven, 
catches the bus on his own trying to visit his grandma. Number eight, runs away when he discovers that he's an orphan. Number nine, finds, keeps and terrorises a gecko unbeknownst to his family. And number ten, kidnaps a child from his preschool in the pursuit of candy. When you say discovers he's an orphan, does he just find out that his parents are dead? That the hatchers have died? Well, Do you mean an adoptee or something? Well, yeah, that's, I guess, Adopt, op, where that adopt. was going. Hmm. Wasn't it explicitly said that they went to the hospital or something? Or am I completely off base there? Have I just invented that in my mind? For, for Fudge's birth, that is. I don't remember that. Mm. Let's say there's nine options then. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, this is the elimination process. Is that what we're doing? Are we eliminating and trying to find the real one? There's a whole lot of uh, cruelty to animals in there. What was I saying before? Socio, something pad. Let's not forget that only one of these is true. Yeah, these are invented by Keith. So any sociopathic barbs you're slinging are probably directed at him <laughs> yeah. more than... He's like, fun. yeah, I like the bit where he swallowed the turtle. <laughs> I have an inkling that I know what it is. So I'm going to have to bow out and allow the others to argue it to the death. You can answer last, Brie. I'm going to mm. guess that he catches the bus um, to try Oh, come on. Prepare. How tame do you want to be? Well, I'm, I just don't want it to be any of the gruesome ones where he, I don't know, abducts a child or hurts an animal. <laughs> he swallows the last black rhino on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Is it dead or alive, though? <laughs> Python-like. Well, that's just playing to your sensitivities rather than the character. You're not really getting the, the meat off the bones there. Uh, well... I don't know. If I had to pick one, I would say... Well, you do have to pick one. <laughs> well, if I had to pick one that wasn't what I want it to be, then I would say he hides his sister under the bed. It's actually where I was leaning as well, because it sounds like the kind of ridiculous, frustrating crap that this fudge bastard gets up to. <laughs> That's where I would have gone as well. No doubt causes a, a bit of a stir. Are, are we unanimous mm. on that? There you go. Mm. Terrorising his family. Is that what happened? I don't think so. It's not the one that I know happens. It's that's definitely one that I invented, but it may happen. I don't know if Bree has a recollection of it. The one that he did do most definitely is kick his preschool teacher because she used his real name or she wouldn't call him Fudge. Uh. That book would have been written quite a while ago. Did the teacher slap him in the face with a cane or something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... No. Rangers <laughs> apprentice level brutality. Well, you know how I appreciate people beating other people with sticks. Oh, don't. <laughs> you are such a bully. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, man. oh, well, good one. So everyone loses. None of us know fudge to the requisite level, apparently. <laughs> you got to get out there and read it some more. I think I'll be reading the next book because I do remember that one as well. And. I don't know if it's come through enough because I've been a bit defensive, but I really, really enjoyed reading this book. It took me a while to get into it because the sentences are really short. And coming from Book of Lost Things to this, it was very, very jarring. Kind of you have a natural rhythm when you're reading and these short sentences threw me off completely and it took me a few pages to get into the rhythm of this book. But once I was in that rhythm, it was a familiar one to me and I loved it. It's almost like they could have removed a period and decapitalised the B on butt. Oh, go home. <laughs> <Stop it. laughs> All right, let's move on. 
It's back to you, Bree. Scoring with Bree. Scoring with Bree. Gotta get older. Can we get a theme song? <laughs> but it's only Bree every couple of weeks now. You'd like to be scoring with Bree. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, or one point. This is as sickly sweet and gross as that banana heavy tropical juicy O drink that Peter's forced to imbibe. Imbibe? Imbibe. imbibe. Oh, dear. That's gregarious of me. <laughs> Two as it's a Gregorius. <laughs> that sounds like the kind of word that Durell would use. <laughs> as sad as missing out on shooting a TV commercial, which eventually goes to your brother. This is three considered and thoughtful, like Peter. Four strong and occasionally fun, like Peter's mother. I put that in for me. Five beautiful, timeless, and wise, like an unmurdered turtle. <laughs> Uh, Laurie uh, What was one? As sickly sweet and gross as that banana heavy tropical juicy O drink I'd rather have a lifetime supply of juicy O and be forced to consume it This is Judy Bloom's raised in salted earth forever scorned for me No thanks One, two, three, four or five One (laughs) No Raised earth you don't understand the audience. You've just given it fewer points than you gave the Enchanted Wood. I'll have yep. you know. Mm-hmm. I'd rather oh. listen to Saucepan Man. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> no. Did someone say Myrtle? <laughs> he ate a Myrtle? Yeah, one star. That's a very fudge-esque opinion there, so I think Judy's won out in the end. Mm. Sure, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Twist! Keith? I'm giving it five stars an unmurdered turtle really by the end i was in full-blown five stars full-blown reminiscence that's not the word i'm looking for i was loving it nostalgia yeah in in full-blown nostalgia by the end of it it is a book for nine-year-olds and below and i need to vote up to raise the average thank you five (laughs) stars that means that you can rate no other book better than this book well, it's only a one to five rating, so there is a bit of movement there. But as a book for the audience that it's aimed at, I really liked it a lot. Wow. Patrick? Well, this has got to be the most polarizing book we've done so far. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to come to this. Uh, this is the end of Tomness. <laughs> <laughs> what was number two again? As sad as missing out on shooting a TV commercial, which eventually goes to your brother. I'm a little bit split. I was marking my Goodreads profile after I read the book uh, this afternoon and Laurie would have seen my rating there. And I was, I have to admit, I was torn between giving it a juicio and a missing out on a television commercial. (laughs) Neither of them are great. You guys have kind of brought me around a little bit, I guess. And so I'm probably going to go a two missing out on a commercial but I think probably it's just not for me and I'm going to have to wait until next week when we read my next choice, the seminal children's classic No Country for Old Men. (laughs) 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 What about you, Brie? Look, for me, this sits right in the middle. This is a three-star book. Keith, don't get too angry. No, no, not at all. Mainly because I think of other Judy Blooms that I would identify with a little bit more than this one. Yeah, this was a dangerous game I was playing and I've quite clearly lost very badly. So my five was an attempt to hide my embarrassment. 
<laughs> I still loved it there. Yeah. There's no uh, no embarrassment need for embarrassment. I don't think because we're receiving a cultural education, whether it's a one or a five. Yeah. Exactly right. And this book is beloved far and wide, and this series in particular. So we might not have seen the best of the series with the first book. It's been going for forty years. I mean, if that's not becoming a classic of some kind of genre, then I don't know what else is. Like, that's pretty good going. Yeah. It's age appropriate and the key is the family element and the narrative voice of a nine-year-old, which is portrayed extremely accurately. So it's no surprise to me really that the four of us as 30-year-olds had a very different take on it, depending on whether we had a history with the book and depending on whether we have children or not. The reaction I got from you guys, I had hoped that it would be a little better than that, but I'll cry myself to sleep tonight, thanks. I feel bad now. Read it to your three-year-old. I plan to read it to my four-year-old at some point in the next couple of years. I think there's value in it. Yeah, I did try reading some passages from it to Daniel. He wasn't in the right frame of mind for it, so he didn't last more than a few pages. Were you standing on a chair in the kitchen and putting on a Shakespearean tenor as you read it? Because that might have had something to do with it. I think he was probably just in a fudge mood. Yeah, that's possible as well. Next episode. It wouldn't be seeking tumness if we didn't use the term Dalish. Next episode, we hold our noses and plunge into the miasmic cloud of Mr. Stink, a children's book by David Williams, who you might know from Little Britain, and illustrated by Quentin Blake. He's very popular and has been touted as today's Dahl, and we want to know why. Thank you for joining us this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. We're on Twitter, Gmail, Facebook, and our website, Seeking Tumness, all one word for all of the above. Keith, you wanted to quickly mention some fans. Yes, we've got a few ratings and a few reviews on iTunes, and there's one in particular that stands out for me. I'm not quite sure the reason, but it's from KeithFan86, and it's a (laughs) five-star review. I wonder who wrote this. I wonder who wrote this. This is clearly a fraudulent review put up by one of the podcasters themselves. I did have my concerns at first, but I've been assured of its legitimacy. So, Gregor AU, thank you very much for the glowing review. Loved it. Of course you did. (laughs) Thanks, Keith. Now, kids, even if a book breaks your heart, remember to keep reading and hide turtles from men in metal masks or younger brothers because they've been known to utter the words Tonight I dine on turtle soup. (laughs) Brilliant. Night I dine on turtle soup. Yes, thank you for trashing my childhood. <laughs>